Hi, I'm Will Townsend. I'm the Principal Analyst for the Networking and Security Practices at More Insights and Strategy. And at More Insights and Strategy, we do believe 5G will change the world just based on the numerous conversations that we have with operators, communication service providers, and infrastructure providers. For RCR Wireless News, I'm Sean Kinney, and welcome to Will 5G Change the World, the weekly podcast where we engage with a wide variety of industry experts to answer that important question. But before we get into our 5G discussion, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better by posing three questions from the Proust questionnaire. Will, are you ready for those? I think I am, Sean. (laughs) All right. Question number one, what is your greatest extravagance? That is a great question. I actually have two. The first are bicycles. So I got hooked on um, cycling many years ago uh, when, in, when I was younger and in my fitter days, I did triathlon, I did long distance uh, cycling. So last time I checked, I believe I own six or seven bikes So um, that my wife's aware of. <laughs> and I would say my second extravagance is I've always had a fascination for mechanical watches. So I am a collector of Swiss timepieces. And question number two, Will, where would you most like to live? That is a great question. So I've chosen two places. So uh, the Florida Keys is near and dear to my heart. I love to scuba dive. I love to snorkel. And so I have uh, a very modest condominium in Isla Morada, which is in the Middle Keys. And the second area that I most like to live is Colorado. And um, in Southern Colorado, I've had the good fortune of finding a little bit of acreage and hope to build a home there. You know, both places provide a little bit of relief from this uh, tremendous heat that we're experiencing in Texas where I live today. As you know, Will, I am a uh, former resident of the Florida Keys. It's a wonderful place to live. And uh, it kind of segue into the third question here. Who are your favorite writers? Well, that's a total layup. So I'm going to have to say Ernest Hemingway. So I know you and I have talked uh, numerous times about your time in Key West. And, you know, Ernest Hemingway lived there for a good majority of his life. I've been to uh, his home, which is now a museum, with the famous polydactyl cats. And um, what I loved about Ernest Hemingway was just his writing style, very crisp, very clear, very descriptive. And that is what I try to emulate as a Forbes contributor. You know, Sean, the areas of technology that I cover, networking and security, can be a little dry at times. And so I try to use uh, his writing techniques to make my, uh, you know, writing interesting uh, and impactful and most importantly, understandable, because I think what we're going to talk about today can get pretty complicated. So, Will, I really appreciate you coming on the show because I need your help with something. You know, I've been really struggling lately as it relates to this podcast. You know, this question, will 5G change the world? We're five years in and and I don't know that I have anything really world changing to point to at this uh, particular juncture. So I'm curious, do you feel like 5G was maybe overpromised and underdelivered, or am I just being a, a little naive or, or thinking on maybe too short of a time horizon? No, Sean, I don't think you are at all. You know, you know, from my perspective, the hype cycle was was huge with 5G and its promises of ultra low latency and massive device support and 
you know, you know, throughput that was, you know, 30, 40, 50 times that of, of LTE. And, you know, the operators, and I won't single anyone out in particular, but I think the operators uh, had a large, you know, part in that, you know, kind of getting ahead of deployments, you know, initially early on as, you know, network infrastructure was being deployed, devices weren't available. So these activities, you know, a lack of device support, you know, created um, challenges and issues um, for, for many subscribers. And honestly, I think another challenge was that application developers weren't out in front of it as well. They didn't have access to, you know, 5G new radio, even, you know, pre-3GPP standard test beds to develop applications. So I think all of that sort of comes together to um, kind of make some folks feel that um, 5G hasn't delivered on its true promise. Yeah, I think that's all exactly right. But I am trying to keep hope alive. And it seems like maybe the next thing that's going to be of of significant interest is around this transition from non-standalone to standalone 5G, when we get our cloud native core, when we get our service-based architecture, et cetera. But I'm curious, it seems like this transition to standalone and all of the cool things that that can support is also moving quite slowly. So Mm -hmm. do you think, one, operators are ready to make this jump? And and two, is this what it's going to take to make 5G interesting, to give us these new services, these new applications, and just really deliver on this, you know, broad idea of 5G as a vector for innovation? You know, it's a great question, Sean. And what you have to bear in mind is with uh, with 5G, this is the first time that we've had what I call the tweener, which is non-standalone and then the transition to standalone. And this just basically has given operators the, the chance to begin upgrading the radio access network infrastructure first and then follow that up with the core infrastructure. So again, this is the first time that we've had this bifurcated deployment And I think it has slowed things, but what you also have to bear in mind too, and I'll speak from the U.S.'s perspective, there was really only one operator that had a complete spectrum footprint, and that's T-Mobile. I know we're going to talk about T-Mobile in a moment. Um, Verizon and AT&T, they were lacking critical mid-band. And at a very high level, mid-band spectrum provides the best balance of propagation and performance. And so that's why you saw with the C-band auction that occurred, you know, a year or so ago, um, it was a record, you know, for the FCC, uh, over 80-something billion in revenue raised. That is what's going to be really required to unlock the true promise of 5G and, and move that to a standalone architecture. And so, you know, AT&T and Verizon had to fill in those mid-band gaps. And so they're they're in sort of the midst of building out those, those assets, just getting that mid-band spectrum deployed, number one, in a non-standalone scenario. So I think, you know, you know, all of that has sort of contributed to this long tail deployment, right, wrong, or indifferent. Hi everyone, Sean here. I wanted to take a moment to tell you that this episode of Will 5G Change the World is presented in partnership with NetScout. NetScout provides the power of seamless visibility into the performance, availability, and security risks across any network, any data center, any cloud, 5G, and more. 
Read more at netscout.com. Now let's get back to our conversation. You mentioned T-Mobile. Let's let's talk about T-Mobile. I mean, first of all, the Spectrum strategy, the merger strategy, and the execution after that. I mean, going to be learning about that in business school here in the near future because that was an absolute wow. masterclass. To the conversation we're having around standalone, TMOS had their low band 600 megahertz spectrum running on a standalone network, I think, since 2019. Someone can email me to correct me if that's wrong. But last mm-hmm. week, they announced a dedicated network slice that developers can use to work on video calling applications. So maybe help us understand a little bit the significance of this and and what it tells you about T-Mobile's strategy as they continue down this path. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, clearly T-Mobile has just been in execution mode. There were a lot of doubters around its acquisition of Sprint, whether that would get approved. There were starts, there were stops. I mean, I'm on the record. I'll take my victory lap. Um, I believe that that merger was going to come together. It was going to be accretive. There were just too many synergies involved. And you've got to you know, keep in mind that both T-Mobile and Sprint's track records weren't exactly stellar prior to the, the merger. And so in both companies coming together, what it created was this incredible spectrum footprint. So low band assets, mid band assets, as well as millimeter wave, although we haven't seen uh, the you know the new T-Mobile, if we can still call them the new T-Mobile, deploy a lot of that. They've been really focused on coverage, which is what low band spectrum gives you. It gives you decent performance, maybe one or two times that of, of LTE, but it gives you that very, very broad um, propagation. And then again, that mid-band spectrum gives you that optimal balance of, of uh, propagation and, and performance. But what's really exciting about network slicing is that Number one, it's new for 5G. It's basically an ability to virtualize the physical network and do so and define criteria, technology criteria like latency and throughput um, and tailor that to specific applications. And so number one, that's new for 5G. I mean, it was discussed within you know the LTE time bound, but... LTE just didn't have um, the muscle to get there. 5G does. But you know what's also important, Sean? The only way that you get to network slicing is with a standalone network. Matching that core 5G infrastructure with that radio access network 5G infrastructure. And what's really exciting because T-Mobile has been the first, they, they were the first in the world to deploy, to your point, standalone on their, their low band spectrum assets. But now with their announcement of this, this network slice beta for developers, that, that, that's a huge milestone. And actually, I, you know, I commented on this on, on Twitter. What's significant about that is that it's, it's going to, you know, I was talking earlier about how developers weren't in front of the 5G deployment dating all the way back to, you know, 2019, 2018. With this network uh, slicing data, it's going to give them that sandbox that they need to innovate and develop the next generation applications that take the true promise of 5G uh, to the end, you know, the the last mile from from my perspective. Really excited to see what Timo has in store for us going forward. And um, to change subjects here a, a little bit, Will, I wanted to 
talk to you about something you know you're you're very passionate about and uh something that you're also working on a, a book about and that's bridging the digital divide you know that's something that we hear a lot of talk about we see a good deal of interest from federal government from state level regulators and so on but still an issue for rural and urban places in america and all over the world so maybe just take us through why this topic's captured your attention and what you see happening in the space it's a great question and it's it's a personal passion project for me um just a little bit of history so my father was born in brazil um, and I actually shared something on Twitter recently. Uh, he was born in a company town called Fordlandia. And this was a Ford Motor Company um, company town that was basically opened on the banks of the Amazon River. And it was designed to help with um, rubber production to support the war effort with Ford. And um, it was an experiment that eventually faded. But, um, you know, and, you know, through my father's experience, you know, that was a part of the world. And, and certainly back in, you know, the, the 40s and the 50s, you know, we didn't have mobile networks. But what I have seen as I've traveled all around the world is how connectivity can change lives, how it can drive digital inclusion, how it can lift people out of economic uh, hardship by providing them connectivity to the Internet. Um, I've seen it in places like India. I've seen it in places like Brazil. And, and so that, you know, as I thought about that and my father's experience, you know, growing up in, in you know, a very impoverished part of um, South America and seeing as an analyst uh, with the, um, the ability to be able to travel the world and, and see the real impact of connectivity, it really, it provided a passion for me to want to write about it. Um, I started this uh, prior to the pandemic and my book is basically a travelogue. Um, I'm going to spend time with Cisco. And um, they have a fantastic program called the Country Digital Acceleration Program, where they're going into parts of the world that have been underserved by connectivity, and they're making investments. And this is not a not-for-profit, but they're willing to put the upfront money into standing up next generation networks. They can be, it can be Wi-Fi, it can be, you know, it can be, you know, 4G and 5G networks. And um, I'm planning to spend time with Cisco, travel um, to three or different parts of the world to see the impact of what connectivity is doing to, um, to raise people um, out of economic despair. And I'll just share one example. Um, in India, uh, Guy Diedrich, who um, runs that program for Cisco, he talks about a very small town in India where the women were making um, handmade goods and they were, you know, basically selling them on the street um, to be able to provide money for food and clothing for their families. Well, um, Cisco invested in, in in that little city, helped stand up a um, a mobile network, and gave these women the ability to be able to sell their items online, which obviously, you know, greatly expanded their revenue potential. And it really changed the economic prosperity for this little town. So, you know, it's examples like those, Sean, that um, that that really kind of instilled some passion in me to want to get out, do some travel and, you know, and record this. And, and again, write about it in a way that's not dry. Um, so the travel log, you know, I'm, I'm hoping um, that um, that provides an interesting angle to, to, the, to the writing style. 
Um, I'm, you know, I'm about halfway through it. Um, it's taken a lot longer because obviously the pandemic stymied uh, the ability to travel internationally there for a couple of years, but, but I'm picking that back up and uh, I'm looking forward to completing it towards the end of this year, early next year and, and, you know, target a published date probably middle of next year. But, but thanks for asking about that because it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Yeah, great topic. And that's a, a great format that you've come up with. Can't wait to read. So best of luck as you continue working on that. I know it's a difficult process. Definitely. Well, thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, Will, you mentioned earlier your contributions to Forbes. That's a, a great place for our audience to keep an eye on on your work products. But I was looking through some of your recent pieces last week, and I, I wanted to pull one out here that focused in on fear, uncertainty, and doubt in the global uh, radio access network market. So I guess two kind of themes in there we could maybe discuss. One, depending on where you put your start date, you could make the case that we're roughly at a midpoint in the 5G cycle. And then, you know, mature markets like the U.S. particularly, as, as our audience will know from coverage of the recent carrier earnings calls, they are dramatically cutting CapEx. Uh other trend is this kind of slow roll on open RAN. This came with a lot of a uh, lot of promises and and continues to yeah. really kind of just shuffle along. Most of the actions in greenfield, brownfields, really where mm-hmm. the kind of most innovation could happen, the most money could flow to suppliers, but it's just not really going on. So maybe just give us some thoughts on on what we're seeing here, how we should think about this. Is this just kind of a cyclical turn of the screw or is this maybe a little more concerning? Well, let's talk about um, that article that I wrote on on the RAND market. And, it, you know, and that was sort of I, I got the inspiration for that because there was a, a report from another analyst firm whose name I will not mention <laughs> that that talked about, you know, how, you know, the forecast for for RAND over the next five years was going to be flat to negative. And, you know, that's not surprising for me because when you sort of look at this, you know, non-standalone, standalone deployment with 5G, with non-standalone, the focus has been on upgrading the, you know, the RAN. And so to your point, I do believe we're about midway through the the 5G cycle. You know, the typical G has lasted, you know, on average about a decade. And so from my perspective, the, the, the RAN functionality um, for 5G has been fully built out. So that it's not surprising for me to see that. Um, what, what's also not surprising for me, you talked about um, Open RAN and how it's shuffling along. And I agree with you there. I mean, I think Open RAN, there was a lot of excitement around it initially because it allows, in particular, the United States to domesticate its 5G supply chain, wean its dependence off of um, foreign infrastructure. You know, initially that was China. Um, but also, if you think about the, the big infrastructure providers and mobility, um, you've got two European companies and you've got one Korean company. And so, you know, hey, I, I get it, you know, and, and also... Open RAN leans into a core competency of the United States, which is software. And a lot of this is software defined. So it's all good. It's all, it all has the right intentions. Um, the challenge is, you know, initially, and I, and I kind of called this out, one, Open RAN initially was very, um, I would say, CapEx 
optimized and OPEX optimized, not performance optimized, number one. And, and so there were some initial hesitations by some of the big infrastructure providers to get behind it. Um, you know, the other, the, the other challenge is with integration. And so in traditional, you know, RAN deployments, the, the big infrastructure providers charge the mobile network operators a tidy sum to integrate all this, but it's bulletproof, right? It's carrier grade. And with an open RAN, um, the integration is left to a, a an SI, um, a value-added reseller that might not necessarily have the right level of competency. And so you saw Rakuten, an early leader in open RAN, um, as a mobile network operator, actually spin off a division called Symphony to um, provide you know solutions uh, that better you know integrated you know open RAN technologies. While its CEO Tarek uh, was recently, he's recently departed the company. Uh, there's been a management shuffle there. You've seen similar management shuffles at Dish. Um, their greenfield um, deployment, which is highly cloud native, which is highly disaggregated and involves Open RAN, um, their former chief network officer, um, it stated to me that, hey, listen, you know, the integration is not without its challenges, right? So, you know, I think when you when you sort of look at you know how Open RAN was very you know optimized around you know cost and not performance, and when you, you look at some of these you know these these companies that have been the leaders in greenfield deployments and how they've how they've stumbled and how they've reshuffled management. Um, and I kind of shared, you know, this, you know, in a tweet earlier this week. Um, there is some trouble, I think, in in, in open RAN paradise. I think uh, to your point, it can be very impactful in brownfield deployments, but here's the challenge. Um, those plans were locked many years ago ahead of the initial deployments of 5G back in 2019, 2018, you could even argue 2017, the mobile network operators were already making their RAN choices. So um, from my perspective, it's been sort of proof of concept, you know, with these really large operators that operate established brownfield networks. I mean, you could probably point to Vodafone as being the most aggressive established MNO um, that, that's deployment, but it's, but it's in pockets, right? So in regions where they they have you know some challenges with you know with infrastructure and in the cost of it all, so a long way to answer both you know both points there, but you know that's sort of my take on it. And then you know last thing here, Will, you and your your colleague Ansh will host a great podcast. That's a really good way to keep up with all the news happening in our industry. So maybe just give our audience a, a little bit of flavor around the formats, topics, and how people can listen. Yeah, thanks. So it's the G2 on 5G. Um, we're in our third season. So we've recorded over 150 episodes. And what we try to do is uh, cover six topics in 20 minutes. And it's sort of our hot take on the latest news. And uh, we've had a lot of fun with it. We've actually had you, Sean, on as a, as a guest host. We've had Diana Guvertz from Fierce Telecom as a guest host as well. And yeah, and we we invite our listeners and viewers to you know provide topics for future episodes, and and we've seen that kind of come down you know the pipe as well. So again, you know we're just having a lot of fun with it. We try to keep it you know quick and topical, and um, we're on all the major um, you know podcast audio podcast channels. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, you name it, and we also host it on a because we do a video version as well at the same time. 
Um, we have a YouTube channel. And uh, if you just Google GT on 5G, you should be able to find both the audio and uh, the video. Yeah, be sure to check that out. It's really a great show. And, uh, you know, Will, maybe we'll end here with a Hemingway quote that I pulled while we were talking. Never confuse movement with action. You know, I think we've seen a lot of movement in the 5G space. I'm ready for some action, man. What about you? Oh, man, I'm, I'm ready for action. And, you know, I think standalone will really unlock the true promise of 5G. And I'm encouraged to see the progress that other mobile network operators around the world are making and deploying their, their mid-band assets, which are going to be critical um, to providing a balanced, you know, um, you know, service offering there. So I think we're going to, I think the yet, you know, the best is yet to come. All right, Will, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation and answer that question. Will 5G change the world? Thanks, Sean, for having me on.